LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dave Gardner who joins us to ask, are there too many people on planet Earth? The very subject of human population is so controversial and even taboo that it is almost impossible to discuss in any meaningful or objective manner. Those who favour population reduction are often cast as Malthusian misanthropists by their opponents, while those who believe that the earth can easily support current and future population growth are dismissed as naive, irresponsible and even ecocidal. Whatever the case, we are facing a maelstrom of serious environmental crises including climate disruption, species extinction, deforestation, freshwater shortages and fertile soil depletion. The sheer size of the human enterprise is a major root cause of all these. Have we simply outgrown the planet? Smarter, more sustainable practices are a necessary part of the solution, but we may never solve these crises over the long term without also scaling back the size of our population. But questions remain. Can this be done without coercive or draconian measures? What impact would a smaller population have on the economy and standards of living? Can we learn anything from countries whose populations are already in decline? And, in our consumerist culture of ever greater growth and yet more things and stuff, are we really ready for a new way of being? Hello and welcome, Dave, and thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's great to be back. Now, Dave, it's been a full seven years, believe it or not, since we last spoke, and that was about the movie Growthbusters that had just come out around that time. Now, since then, you've still got one foot in the Growthbusters camp, but you have moved on to other things. Now, in my recorded introduction, I've explained to listeners basically what we're going to be talking about. But before we jump into that, just for people who are not familiar with you, just tell us a little bit about your background and your, your work. Sure. Well, I uh, have been a lifelong professional filmmaker, uh, and as you know from our prior episode, uh, I did turn my attention back in oh, around 2006 to cre- creating a documentary about our culture's love affair with growth. I, prior to that, I was working for the bad guys, making a living doing propaganda for for big companies around the world. I uh, finally decided there was a more important story to tell, so I became a starving documentary filmmaker, produced the movie Growth Busters, Hooked on Growth, which was released late in 2011, not coincidentally uh, right about within days of the date that the United Nations said uh, world population passed through the 7 billion milestone. Um, But that film was about more than population growth. It was really about... uh, the unsustainable scale of the of the human enterprise and how we had over, outgrown the planet. And it turned out in my research for the film that 
population really was just kind of half of the story. The other half was uh, economic growth, our obsession with that, and overconsumption. Uh, so I've tried to keep that kind of a 50-50 kind of split of attention on the Growth Busters project, which never went away. Once I finished that film, I continued to do uh, media interviews and uh, guest uh, lectures at college campuses and uh, speaking engagements at churches and service clubs and uh, and, and you name it, and uh, eventually launched the Growth Busters podcast about sustainable living uh, so that I could continue to try to alert uh, and inspire and educate people about uh, Overshoot and what we could be doing about it. But about uh, four or five years ago, I added, you know, as if I wasn't busy enough, I added an, another job as a part-time executive director of World Population Balance, which is a, a U.S.-based nonprofit that I discovered when I was working on the Growth Busters film. The, the gentleman, Dave Paxson, who had founded the organization back in 1992, uh, he felt like it was time for him to step back and start moving into retirement. And he and I kind of were talking about possible candidates to assume the leadership there. And, there, and you know, it kind of just dawned on us that I was really probably one of the best candidates because we wanted somebody really knowledgeable and crazy obsessive about the about the subject and I, I kind of filled the bill on that. So for about the last four or five years I've been managing that nonprofit and really trying to take it up to a new level uh, where it had been kind of a local and regional organization. It now really is playing on a, the global stage and we partner with some of the big the biggest uh, sustainable population advocacy organizations around the world, such as Population Matters, which I'm sure you're familiar with there in the UK. Uh, so I'm running that project, and I started another podcast for World Population Balance. It's called the Overpopulation Podcast, and I'm pretty proud of, of that work. I think we're really cranking out very solid uh, episodes that are um, – I mean, really cutting edge thinking that everybody, you know, should be required listening for everybody walking the planet. But of course, it's not. Uh, so hosting the Growth Busters podcast now, hosting the Overpopulation podcast, and then just recently launched a new project for World Population Balance, which is putting up billboards about overpopulation. So that's me seven days a week trying to save the planet. Well, at this stage, only a few minutes into this, uh, there will be people that we have already lost. Uh, there will be people who didn't even click on any of the links because of a, uh, the subject matter. People will have already dropped out and there will be people still listening who are absolutely bristling with rage, hurling expletives at their device as they hear you speak. And of course, there'll be others who are probably in your camp to some extent who are, can't wait to get into the meat of the subject. What I'm trying to say here is this is a controversial subject. There's no pretending that it isn't. Part of the reason is because of what you describe as an information vacuum around uh, this particular issue and for a lot of people talking about population and specifically that we there you know maybe too many humans on the planet in order to sustain the systems that we have there's just something of you know the four horsemen about it that you know disasters war plagues famine and all the rest of it is going to like kill lots of people that's their vision of what population reduction looks like uh, you know it's always a terrible disaster that befalls the species. Other people might think about Chinese one-child policy, you no know, very draconian measures 
to uh, attempt to limit population. And that, of course, had some disastrous side effects. And in general, there's something Malthusian and misanthropic about it for a lot of people that if you're talking about population limits or population balance, shall we more properly say, that you basically don't like people. You know, and of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, in many cases, but ultimately, I think for a lot of people, it's seen as somehow freedom limiting in the same way that not being able to drive to Walmart and buy all of everything, plastic stuff from China is freedom limiting, <laughs> you know, but then not being able to go around and murder people on the streets is, is a kind of limit on your freedom as well. So it's just a question of what you see as freedom. Well, I'm glad that you you said that, especially after I I think I gave you way too long of a of a, a bio on myself to give plenty of people a chance to to leave if they want. But I hope you're right. I hope there are some people listening who are a little bit enraged by what I said because uh, I I look at that as an opportunity to correct some uh, misassumptions and and myths that are out there today, which is one of the reasons why I'm so energized around the uh, world population balance work and the and the billboard campaign. Uh, it is time, it is high time that we brought that subject out from under the rug so that we could uh, put some daylight on it and, and truly dismiss some of the complaints that some people have, some of the fears that some people have around it. Because the truth is, it's... Uh, and I'll be glad to get into it, uh, but top level, it's really essential that we address uh, human numbers. It, there, there is no way that the children of the world today can live decent lives if we don't start working on that part of the problem. It's not the only problem we need to address, but it's an essential part of the problem. And the other, the other thing is that we've, because it's been brushed under the rug, because it has been uncomfortable to talk about, there's just not enough uh, really good literacy around around the issue. Uh, so we've really got to put it put it into the daylight and start talking about it. And I think if we can do enough of that, then people will come to realize that it's really not an ugly subject. There's really surprisingly beautiful solutions to the problem. Well, in many people's minds, when considering all this, fantasy and reality have ill-defined boundaries. They're a Venn diagram with some overlap at best. And we're recording this in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. And it's striking looking at the public discourse out there, particularly online, how often the public make recourse to popular culture when getting their ideas about what's happening in the world at the moment, whether it's general systems failure in you know industrial civilization or whether it's a population issue, or whether it is pandemic disease. As I say, they're coming at it from this really strange perspective, this fictional perspective, which, of course, a lot of that sort of fiction is grounded in a possible reality. But when it comes to population, and I've, when I speak to people about this, they almost always revert to dystopian sci-fi when they talk about the idea of there being less people. I mentioned a few moments ago the idea of, like, you know, four horsemen of the apocalypse ways to reduce population. But there's, there's rarely a vision of the world with less people in it that is wholly positive. Because yeah. it somehow seems that population growth is tied in with economic growth, it's tied in with uh, ever greater consumption, and the idea that at some point in future that there might be not 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 billion humans on the planet, but maybe 3, I think it's in some part of our psyche, of our collective psyche, that, that's seen almost like a defeat, you know, because onwards and upwards, 
uh, to the stars has been the narrative for, for so long. Yeah, I think you're, uh, you know, you're right in every respect. And it's, uh, it's a mind boggling for someone like me. Cause I guess I was born without the overpopulation denial chromosome. It's just so clear to me <laughs> that, uh, uh, that we're doing so much damage to the life supporting ecosystems of the planet just because our scale has gotten so big. And it's also so clear to me how almost, almost every problem that we are, uh, our whole society is so busy trying to solve, uh, would be either solved or incredibly easier to solve with fewer people on the planet. I'm thinking about, so, so the, the dystopian future, uh, after human population is somehow reduced to a more sustainable level, that's probably, uh, that might be very accurate if we take the unelegant path and we refuse to recognize that we have a problem and to voluntarily do something about it. If we just decide we're just going to go screaming on toward 11 billion and wait for Mother Nature to correct our, uh, overconsumption issue it will be ugly and that sci-fi future will probably come to pass but if we can if we can bring ourselves to just do the right thing then that future could be so much more elegant and it could be a future in which um no child is hungry children get to lots of attention they're valued uh, they have uh, good opportunities they, they they have a good chance of getting a job they're not worried about unemployment. Uh, they're not worried about the cost of housing. You know, uh, the Ponzi scheme of uh, never-ending population growth is one of the reasons why housing is becoming less and less affordable with each passing year because we just keep on increasing the demand. Uh, so poverty, hunger, uh, employment, uh, Cost of housing, uh, clean air, fresh water. Um, there's, there's just so many issues that are uh, related to overpopulation and uh, the beautiful life that we can have if we were to cut our population in half. I mean, it's undeniable. I mean, no one could, no one except a, an economist could argue with the vision that I have of a really beautiful future with uh, where we aren't all having to be in constant conflict over limited resources and we're not trying to figure out how to live in a climate that's becoming uninhabitable because there are so many of us burning fossil fuels. Well, in terms of population reduction being done under duress, as it were, uh, as you just outlined, you know, if we get to a certain point, well, we're seeing it already, you know, systems start to break down, but so far the population itself uh, overall, globally, uh, continues to climb. But uh, well, I've had a little thought experiment that I do with people when we've been talking about growth generally, but when we've used population growth um, as one as a barometer for growth overall, just in growth in everything, in consumption and manufacturing, and in in waste and in pollution, I mean, okay, we'll take where I'm located. So you've got the island of England, Scotland, and Wales taken together, and I said, okay, well, as far as endless growth goes this is usually talking to someone who's very much so we've got to get the economy growing type of idea you know because our problems yeah. will be fixed if we can just get the economy growing i've said okay well let's just take it in terms of people the logical end to what you're saying means that every single inch of the united kingdom 
will have a person in it. So however many square feet it takes for a person to stand upright, you're saying that the whole island will be completely covered with people. No one will be able to move. It'll, like, it'll be like being on the London underground at rush hour. And they'll say, well, of course, that's absurd. That's not going to happen. I don't, I don't mean that. I say, well, what do you mean? At what point does that stop? They'll say, <laughs> okay, you know, because the population keeps going up. So at what point would it, would it level out? And I'm not talking about slower growth because that's not leveling out. That's growth. So yep, at yep. what point would it just say, oh, do you know what? For the last year, we've had, we've not added any new people to the population. Here, what, when, when does that happen? What do you, you see? It? Well, there's all sorts of factors that could affect that. But even for them just to think, oh yes, we're not going to keep growing the population until every inch of land is covered in people. So then they start, they have to sort of acknowledge that at some point something gives, or we give something. If you see what I mean? Yeah, you're. I think you're saying that everybody has this sort of innate sense. They everybody understands that it it's not going to grow forever. Yeah. They know, they know in the back, deep in the dark recesses of their mind, they know that that's not possible, but they can't imagine that the end of growth will be, you know, in, on their watch, in their lifetime. They just can't imagine that. Uh, it's, you know, so it's totally irrational because at some point, people living on the planet are going to live through the end of growth. I really ha- happen to believe that we, uh, it might not be me. I might not quite be old, young enough to experience it, but I think somebody who's 40 years old today uh, probably is going to be able to say, I lived through the end of growth. And it's either going to be really ugly or it's going to be really beautiful. And you, and you brought up coronavirus, and that's, you know, coronavirus is not going to, it doesn't look like it's going to reduce, it's not going to make even a tiny dent in our population numbers, because I think we've got some them like 360,000 new human beings born every day. Uh, and I don't think coronavirus is going to cause that many deaths every day. So it's not, it's not going to remedy our overpopulation situation, but it is a kind of a good example of, of the, the ugly way for our species to ultimately be limited is, you know, is mother nature's way. You know, she, she doesn't really have beautiful ways. She has the hard Cord realities of uh, you know life in the wild and uh, certainly epidemics and pandemics, uh, uh, hunger and uh, and things like that. All of those are all on her menu for solving the problem. Uh, meanwhile, on our menu for solving the problem, we've actually been eating off of that menu for about sixty years. We have actually reduced the uh, birth rates significantly. Uh, the average family in 1960 on the planet was about five kids, and today the average family is less than two and a half kids. And we've done that, you know. But you know, China being the the exception, uh, we've done that voluntarily, you know, just by freely choosing smaller families because we've discovered uh, all of the the joys and benefits of of having smaller families. So that you know we. We have some experience with the solution. We just need to celebrate that more, not let the economists talk us into reversing that. And uh, it would be smart for us to uh, have a little bit more rapid progress in that department and keep moving family size down a lot closer to one as quickly as we can since we're really in, a, I think, an overshoot crisis today. Well, I don't have figures at my fingertips, but it, it, I've read a lot about 
if not all, then most um, developed industrial civilizations do have falling indigenous populations or, you know, not indigenous and people who've been there for generations. Um, But the numbers, numbers that show overall growth, for example, here in the UK, in EU countries, in the, in North America are masked by mass migration. So, you know, people from elsewhere in the world moving to these places keeps the population going up. But I think a lot of people, even people who are very concerned about migration and immigration, uh, even, you know, uh, like right wing politicians who will bang on about it all the time and, and will say something like, you know, our, our population is being replaced by these immigrants. Even they maybe haven't grasped the full import of the fact, you know, of the other dimensions of their population declining that they're seeing it as a bad thing for cultural reasons. But yeah, what a lot of people are not aware of that this natural thing is happening. And that the only issue being is that. A lot of the other parts of the world where the, where the, you know, people are still having large families and the population is growing. They, because of the, the, the stress on the, you know, economic and environmental systems, they may not see, they almost certainly will not see the, the, the benefits, the improvements in living standards that would lead them to naturally cut their family size. You know, that, that's probably not going to happen. Well, there's some truth to that. Although here's one of the, one of the myths that uh, persists, uh, even among some people who are pretty conversant with the subject, uh, just because the subject doesn't get talked about uh, enough, is that uh, uh, fertility rates drop following uh, uh, society's financial improvement as uh, as the people get as the people become wealthier, their family size drops, and the truth is. More often than not, the family sizes drop before the financial improvement shows up. Did you know that? Kind of surprising, isn't it? Well, I had I had read that, but I the, I guess the point I was making was a general one that you know uh, about yeah. about living standards that you know all of sub-Saharan Africa is not going to have SUV and air conditioning and you know etc cetera, etc. Cetera, you know. Yeah, and you know I think a lot of people don't uh, understand that and they don't think about that and. So, in fact, if, if, if you will allow me, what I'd like to do is uh, address that by kind of going back, circling back to the kind of the decision make matrix that I've been led through that helped me decide uh, that we couldn't ignore overpopulation. Uh, a lot of people, because people are uncomfortable about it, there are especially environmentalists today uh, are kind of beating the drum trying to convince us all that uh that overpopulation is some kind of a uh, a bogeyman that it's not it's not an issue that we need to deal with our problem is overconsumption our problem is capitalism we've got uh, you know the richest couple of billion people in the world are living too high on the hog and especially the richest 20 or 30 people in the world are living too high on the hog, but but if you do if you do the math, uh, you soon learn that just uh, you know just solving that part of the problem isn't going to get us where we need to be. So uh, bear with me while I do this math, and if you decide it's too uh, uh, too boring for your audience, you can cut it out. Uh, <laughs> The, the Global Footprint Network does the most serious analysis of global data to kind of figure out uh, whether we're in overshoot or not. How, you know, they compare the footprint of 
hum, the human race to the biocapacity of the of the planet and they're telling us that right now we're we would need about 1.75 planet earths for us to be uh living sustainably at current levels of consumption we're we're rapidly approaching to planet living and and we're doing that because and because we're doing that on on just one planet we're in the process of crippling life's uh the earth's life supporting ecosystems uh making them weaker and less able to to meet our needs with each passing year uh so let's just say let's just do rough back of the cocktail napkin calculation you know we we've got uh uh overconsumption uh, to the tune of about 200% uh, a good proxy for our level of consumption would be the size of the global economy. If if we take gross world product in 2019, I think it was about it was 86.6 trillion dollars. If we divide that by the number of people on the planet, about seven and a half billion, that gives you uh, per person about eleven thousand five hundred dollars. And I'm using U.S. Uh, figures. I apologize for that. I live in the U.S. Uh, so about eleven thousand. $500 U.S. per person uh, of uh, economic activity. And, and at that level, we are almost twice as hard on the planet as we can afford to be over the long term. So if we decided, well, I'm too uncomfortable talking about overpopulation, we're going to have to leave that alone and just keep on making babies uh, until – you know, Mother Nature decides to do something about it. But boy, let's see if we can't rein in our overconsumption. Then we would need to basically divide the global economy in half. We'd need to shrink it to half that size. So that what that would mean is that instead of 11,500 U.S. dollars worth of economic activity per person, uh, we'd have to limit ourselves to about $5,750 U.S. So that, you know, just in general terms, ask yourself, you know, can you live on that? Are you willing to to live with your annual income being about a little less than $6,000 U.S. per year? Um, most people would not raise their hand and say, yes, I volunteer to do that because I want a beautiful planet for future generations and because I'm too uncomfortable to talk about addressing overpopulation. Not going to work. So that's why we have to, do, you know, we have to work on that. We do need to reduce our consumption, but we're going to have to work on the population side of it too, so that so that the math doesn't get us down to less than six thousand dollars per person. Yeah, I mean, and to quote from um, some of the press material, uh, you know, we can't solve our most critical environmental and social crises if those efforts don't include scaling back human population. And it w in the light of you mentioning about environmentalists seeing population management or whatever as just kind of a, a, a some sort of no-go area and just concentrating on consumption that's mm -hmm. that's why a lot of these initiatives and you know are not working because of the number of people involved now obviously barring the sort of disasters that we've mentioned a couple of times already there's not likely to be any large-scale reduction in human population in a short time frame but it's like trying to turn around like a like an ocean liner, isn't it? You know, you can't just do it on a dime. But you're on your way if you start to put your foot on the brake. I mean, I think uh, you can give me your take on this. I think even anybody who's in complete agreement with you acknowledges that this 
to do it the right way, the most desirable way, you know, the best way for the species and the planet isn't something that's going to happen overnight. But some of the material, again, you've talked about population reduction, ultimately down to maybe about 3 billion. In your sort of ideal world, what sort of time scale could something meaningful happen in, you know, like, for example, a generation? Could something positive be done in a generation? Two generations, you know, a century? Uh, perhaps you could just give us a feel for, you know, for that. Because for a lot of people, they, fe- they feel hopeless about the situation. And uh, as they do about a lot of other uh, problems that we, we face. And, and that's not a good place to be in because that, at best, people are in a sort of catatonic state about it. And that doesn't benefit them or anyone else. At worst, yeah. they, they plow yeah. on with the sort of, well, I'll be dead by then, sort of, you know, gung-ho attitude. Yeah, I'd be glad to devote the next two hours to that subject. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad you asked that question because I was uh, I was of a similar mind where I just thought, uh, man, it's going to take a long, long time for us to really do anything meaningful about the, the number of human beings uh, walking the earth. And most people are familiar with the, uh, the and they don't really call them predictions, but the scenarios that the United Nations demographers put out where they kind of try to analyze what the trends are, are looking like. And uh, they give us a high, medium, and low scenario of what we might expect world population to be in uh, 2030, 2050, and at the turn of the century, 2100. And the latest uh Math that they did, they were estimating the medium scenario, which is the most likely, they, according to those demographers, uh, would have us be just about to hit 11 billion. We're, we're almost at 7.8 billion today. Uh, by 2100, UN demographers think that we, that we might, if current trends continue, uh, be approaching 12 billion and that it might almost be leveling off. Most people think that that is uh, baked into the cake, that that's inevitable. Now, we can't change that um, because, well, after all, the UN demographers have said that's what, that's what it's going to be. But, but there's, you know, shoot, there's 80 years between now and 2100, a, a lot could happen. And we're, you know, we're adding about 84 million people to the planet every year. And if we all decided, if we got serious about it and said, you know what, we're kind of concerned about this overpopulation Thing And we really don't want to all live like paupers in order to live sustainably. So we're going to have a moratorium on bearing children for a year. We're going to go a year without creating any new children. Then that would be, in, in the course of one year, that would be 84 million fewer people added to the planet. And you can't say that's insignificant. You can say, well, that's never going to happen. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's mathematically possible, but it's, uh, but there are a lot of uh, barriers in the way. Um, but what gave me hope and made me realize that it isn't really going to be, it doesn't have to be a long wait is, uh, some math that a couple of real smart guys in the UK did. They really spent a lot of time working on, uh, spreadsheets that would rival what the UN demographers use. And they determined that, you know, they gave me the information that if instead of uh, global average fertility, which is today about 2.45, I think, if it were one, if the average family size was one child starting tomorrow, that in a hundred years, we would be, global population would be back down to about three billion people just in a hundred years. 
Now that's, I don't know, you could say that's a long time, but it's not, you know, it's not a lot of lifetimes away. It's a lot faster than I would have thought that, uh, that instead of being 12 billion in 2100, we could be about 4 billion and on our way down toward 3 billion. And it, and then we wouldn't have to all say we're not going to make babies for a hundred years. We could say we're going to have a, an average. For every family that has zero children, there could be another family out there that has two, and most people have one, and that's not that far off from what everyone's kind of proving is their desired family size anyway. People listening to this who are pro-population, uh, there's never really the right word to use it. You say control, that sounds bad. You say management, it all sounds top-down uh, draconian measures doesn't it but I think from what we both said so far I think anybody that's actually paying attention should understand what we're getting at and it's worth saying what this is not you're not advocating draconian laws, one child policies abortion and any particular group, demographic uh, group of any sort should be, particularly, should be carrying more weight or burden in any of this than anyone else but it's about having this conversation having information available and allowing people to, to ponder that and make decisions based on that and some people for reasons of their own whatever maybe cultural may decide they want i know a few people with quite large families um who very actively chosen to do that they love having kids they love kids you know and they love having them around and everybody in that situation seems happy that will, will carry on no doubt in some cases but it's about the trend overall, isn't it, really? Uh, so the bottom line is it's worth, you can reflect on that, but it's worth saying what this is not, what you're not about. Very important, actually. Uh, yeah, we don't, first of all, we, we don't have to blame anyone. You know, let's just not worry about uh, who's had larger families in the past. Uh, I was, you know, I had three brothers and sisters. I was a, a part of a four-child family. I don't think my mother and father were evil. Uh, what I do think is that they, you know, didn't have all of the information that they needed to make a really informed decision about family size. And, of course, society, the, the norm, the expectation uh, when they were having their their family back in the uh, 1950s and 1960s, that was just what everybody did. That was the default. Um, so we, So part of this is really just kind of changing the default, making sure – that every couple around the world who is making a family size decision, that, that, that it's an informed decision and a, and a really well considered decision. Uh, that's the main thing that we want to do is just have that information out there. And that's why this taboo on talking about the subject has been really so harmful and it's retarded our progress for uh, a couple of decades. And then, the other thing is that uh, I think it's really important for people to understand. You mentioned it. You made me think of it when you mentioned that we're not targeting uh, some class. We're not targeting people in some country. We're not targeting people uh, uh, with skin of a certain color. Uh, this is this is something for everyone to consider, and that is even in and in fact very importantly in. Uh, what I call the overdeveloped world, because uh, we've kind of overdone it. The industrialized countries that have pretty low birth rates today, most of West Western Europe, the United States, uh, you know, we're all below replacement fertility rate today. Uh, we're at 1.7, I think, in the United States right now. And, and 
the temptation people have is to say, oh, mission accomplished. If you're talking about addressing overpopulation, then you must want to address it in sub-Saharan Africa where the fertility rates are still five and, and six. And uh, the truth is there's certainly work to be done in those countries where the family size is still really large. But what we need people to understand is that it is even more important for us to be working on this issue right here at home, even though our fertility rate may be 1.7. Why? Because two reasons. One, we really need to get it down closer to one in order to, you know, kind of salvage what's left of this planet for for the children of the world so that they do get to live decent lives. Um, But the other is that every child born in this over-consuming industrialized world has uh, such a big footprint. They make so much more difference than uh, a child born in sub-Saharan Africa today uh, in terms of their carbon footprint, uh, the resources that they use. Uh, by various estimates, uh, a child born in, uh, in Western Europe or the U.S. Uh, has 20 to 60 times the, the footprint of a child born in uh, some of the poorer countries in the global south. So that's a that's a huge contribution to sustainability uh, for for people in the overdeveloped world to decide, you know what? We were originally we were thinking we might have two kids, but I think we're going to stop at one. It's a good thing. Now you described briefly your own family background and you were part of a post-war generation uh, when things picked up, as they did spectacularly in the US in the post-war years, yeah. where the typical nuclear family could consist of the American dream cliche of dad has got a job, whether he's a factory worker or an office worker, he's got a good solid job with prospects. You've got uh, a car, you've got a house, you've got a lawn, you've got a lawnmower to mow the lawn. Mom's, the American dream. Yeah, mum stays at home and she cooks and bakes and keeps the place beautiful and more white goods become available, blenders and, you know, eventually microwaves. And you've got <laughs> two kids, you know, maybe three. And when they come of age, you know, you can afford to send them through college. And dad's still got the same job 25 years later. And that all made sense in that context. And fast forward to today, it can be a little bit sad to hear a young couple saying, you know, like maybe just starting out, got their first place and, well, you know, we, we want to have start a family, but we can't afford to at the minute. That's, you know, that's not good for them, it, you know, from their own personal point of view. But it also tells us something if we think about what they're saying. We can't afford to have a child right now. That means not that their employers are being dastardly and, and paying them unusually low wages. If they look around and say, well, yeah, but the cost of living, you know, is so high and job insecurity is there. When you boil it down, those are all functions of the sort of system stress that we're talking about in our industrialized civilization. So the fact that they can't start a family is a function of that. So that's got its own message in all of this as well. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And and the affordability of uh, having children is, uh, I think it's really high on the list of considerations that the young adult uh, today who are making those family size, family size decisions uh, are grappling with and and I'm it's unfortunate that it's so expensive but it's really fortunate that they're becoming more and more aware of that and they're doing the math and they're thinking about it because 
you, you know, it doesn't, you know, for me, if I was making that decision and I, I was in that position, I had two children. I had, uh, let's see, my daughter was born in 1988. My son was born in 1990. A month later, I was getting a vasectomy because, uh, I was aware of overpopulation concerns and I thought, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to stop it too. Uh, turns out I, should have stopped at one, but but I didn't have that knowledge of what we were going to do during the ensuing decade decades. But um, but if I was making that decision today, I would be thinking about a lot of other things uh, besides overpopulation. I'd be thinking about well, how much money am I making, and uh, do I want to have four kids who are all. Uh, you know, really struggling. Some days, some days we might have to ration uh, the family meal a little bit. I, I definitely can't afford to send four kids to college. Uh, there'll be field trips and other opportunities that they can't take advantage of if I have four of them or even two of them. But if I had one, I have more financial resources that I that I can invest in that child. Uh, also, my attention. Uh, I can give that child more of my attention. We actually did, we did an episode of the Overpopulation podcast uh, a couple of episodes ago where we interviewed Lauren Sandler, who's a journalist who uh, did a lot of research and wrote a book about only children, and and she busted all a lot of these myths about the the disadvantages of growing up as an only child. And it really turns out that there's a a, a long list of advantages. Uh, only uh, only children get so much more attention from their parents and that doesn't spoil them. Uh, they uh, they end up being, they do better in school and, and they aren't starved for the time of their parents or the financial resources of their parents. So uh, the financial thing is a big one. And you know, maybe it's unfortunate that that might limit a few people who really would have liked to have had, you know, a, a big brood of four or six kids. But but most people, most parents, it turns out, really, the self-reported happiness is so much higher among parents that have one child versus parents that have two or three or four children. Well, I, I'm an only child, and the only times I really felt like I wanted to have a big brother or maybe a big sister, but probably a big brother when there was some kind of dick at school throwing his weight around, you know, <laughs> trying to be a bully. You know, I thought, because I saw other, some of my friends had bigger brothers at school and they'd be like, you know, I'm not touching that kid. Have you seen his brother sort of thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, so that's good. So you could give us a good, uh, a good story. Uh, and you, you didn't have a lonely childhood, I'm assuming. Your parents probably went out of their way to make sure that you uh, had access to friends. Yeah, it was, I don't remember ever being in it. I never thought about an only child wasn't a, a designation. It was just like, well, I, I don't have any brothers or sisters. But yeah, but so what? Never, yeah. it was never an issue ever on any level. So. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, boy, some of the most impressive smart kids that I've run into out there are, uh, they're, part of one child families and i think there's there's something to that but speaking of dicks um <laughs> you know <laughs> there's two different ways i could go there but yeah, I see. the one yeah, i'm yeah. thinking of i'm thinking of uh, you know you and you you mentioned it how uh uh england scotland wales uh, you're below replacement rate fertility but migration is causing your population to continue to grow and 
if you look at the policymakers, not just in uh, the UK, but policymakers in the US and, uh, and much of the world, a lot of them are, I think they're too old that we need to kick them out and put some younger people in because they, they are clinging to that old notion that, that growth is good and that we can grow forever. And so they look at that, uh, declining birth rate and they worry about their economy because they're hooked on economic growth. And they and the economists are telling them, wow, you're not going to have as many workers in 10 years as you do today. And that's going to make it really hard for you to have economic growth. Well, it turns out you can't grow the economy forever, just like you can't grow the population forever. But they don't understand that. And so they're uh, so today they're really welcoming migration to make up for uh, the declining birth rate. And, and I don't think this is a an immigration story but what it is is it's a sign that they are you know they're so hooked on economic growth that they're going to grow their population if they can't can't grow it one way they'll grow it another and i think you're probably aware of this there are a number of countries where the policymakers are busy trying to get their uh, you know their their native population to get busy incubating more workers. Well, Russia is the uh, best. Russia is the best known example. I think they have. Yeah. You can get a few grand in Russia if you if you if you uh, have another child. Yeah, and Hungary's got something going there. Iran, Poland, Lithuania, Italy, even China. Believe it or not, you know, has uh, has relaxed its one child policy because they started getting nervous about uh, their economy not growing as uh, robustly as it has in the past. And you know, I think if you know if we we're successful at bringing the overpopulation issue out from under the rug, that eventually we'll have policymakers who understand, hey, we're in serious overshoot, and you know, it's going to be there's going to be some challenges for having fewer workers, uh, but. Those pale in comparison to the challenges of, you know, destroying the planet right out from under us. Uh, so it's really important that we that we get them uh, educated and, and literate about overshoot and overpopulation. And that's uh, one of the just one more reason why we started at World Population Balance this billboard campaign that's called the One Planet One Child billboard campaign and we are in the process we have billboards up in two major u.s cities today and we are hoping to uh kind of have a uh a kind of grow it like a snowball as people discover what we're doing and say hey yeah let's do that hey we want to have a billboard in our community uh you know that we hope to expand it at least across the u.s if not around the world and it has a really welcoming message it's not some ugly thing that's you know says you can't have children or you shouldn't have two kids or anything like that it's just celebrating and thanking people who are making small family choices and then and on the billboard, we've got oneplanetonechild.org pretty prominently displayed. So people will be curious after they've seen that billboard and go home after uh, they've driven home from work. And they'll look at that website and they will begin to learn, wow, I had no idea that uh, we could solve overpopulation in 100 years if we really put our put our minds to it. I had no idea that it's a problem that we can address right here in the US or Australia or Canada or the UK. Uh, there's just so much for people to learn from that. So I'm kind of excited. I'm excited about that billboard campaign, but uh, unfortunate timing that we got these billboards up right about the time that everybody's staying home because of the 
pandemic and we don't have nearly as many eyeballs on the driving by them on the freeways right now. Well, we're all thinking on our feet at the minute, aren't we, and making uh, adjustments as we go along, having a rug pulled out from under us in, in various ways. But yes, I mean, sir. there's a lot of colourful hyperbole and rhetoric about contracting economic growth. This what they call negative growth. I love to bring that up all the time because it's just <laughs> I first learned about that when I studied economics at school. Negative growth. What are you talking about? You mean shrinkage? Oh, no, no <laughs> negative growth. Oh, okay, right. Have it your way. You know. But <laughs> but anyway. If we did have a world population of 3 billion, there would be less of everything, including people. There would be less stuff being made, less stuff being consumed. And away from all the rhetoric of the, you know, growth mongers, as it were, there are things to concern. There will be challenges in stepping things down. There's no doubt about that. But there are also challenges in business as usual, which manifestly is going to blow up in our face. So it's yeah. like, it's just a question of which challenges do you want to take on? Which are the most manageable and to what end? What outcome do you want? And it's become increasingly evident that we can't keep papering over the cracks in systems as a result of all the economic, social, environmental and energy problems. So it's like we have to choose another way regardless. Brilliantly said, brilliantly said. And don't you, don't you wish that the policymakers were just, is it smart enough or could just break out of the, the life of being programmed to believe in everlasting growth, to recognize that very important fact that you mentioned, that if you have 3 billion people instead of 8 or 12 billion people, you don't need as big an economy because the economy is there to meet our needs. So if we had a contracting population, a, a contracting economy would be a really good, healthy match. And, and of course, we need both of them to contract if we're going to get back down to one planet living. Well, another challenge is we can see in Japan because people talk about the lost decade in the Japanese economy but in reality it's, it hasn't come back so it's I don't know lost two decades or whatever you want to <laughs> but they, yeah. they have an issue with their you know lack of people being born basically in a contracting population they don't really have so much in the way of immigration there that we do in Europe and the US for example, mm -hmm. and they have an aging population that they have a bit of a problem with because they've got all these needs that need to be met, not just everyday physical needs like looking after older people, but in terms of funding pensions and funding health care and what have you. So that's one of the things that, that we would potentially face, you know, a phase of there being a large, larger number of older people relative to young people or fit people of working age. Which is a temporary condition as, as you, hmm. if you're contracting your population down to a sustainable level where it will ultimately stabilize, that's a temporary bubble that you have to put up with. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no, there's no getting around that. And that's, and I don't think you're denying that there are somehow no challenges or maybe even, well, I've got to say problems. It depends on how you define a problem. But uh, again, I suppose I would just reiterate the point that I made a moment ago about that's fine. People are asking, and you know, no doubt you feel a lot of these questions. Yes, but what about this and what about that and all these other objections? But it's kind of like, yeah, okay. But what we're talking about is a is a way, an alternative path rather than the one that we're on, which actually has much more immediate and drastic looking what ifs and what about this <laughs> things looming in front of us. You know. Yep. I don't know, and I don't know why that doesn't go into the thought process and the equation of most people who are, you know, especially the economists who are busy wringing their hands about how we're going to be able to fund the pensions and all the, all this stuff, uh, and how we're going to have people to fill the jobs. And, you know, an economist of all people, an economist should understand that if you have a smaller population to serve, that you can serve them with a smaller economy. 
But as you know, we've just got this, you know, that we've got this hundred year old now, um, myth that, uh, gross domestic product is a great measure of progress and success. The truth is it's a lousy measure of that. And we should really stop obsessing about that. Well, I'm sure you're aware of the happiness index. I don't know if how many countries have taken part in that. But is it Bhutan or somewhere relatively obscure like that? That is the highest score on the international happiness index of nations in terms of the, the contentedness and well-being of their populations. Yeah. And they, and they're, you know, really famous for having, for kind of saying enough of this gross domestic product stuff. We're going to have, we're going to measure gross, gross national happiness. Yeah, well, you know, economics, gross domestic product is, you know, a measure for a spreadsheet and it doesn't necessarily and usually doesn't have anything to do with people's well-being or happiness or fulfillment or anything like that. Quite often yeah. it's the opposite and economics itself is detached from reality. I say I, I, I studied it formally and for a short time until I realized that it was just I wasn't, I wasn't getting anywhere. You know, it was, it was absolutely had no bearing whatsoever on the world outside the classroom window. And that's a, maybe a bit of a gross exaggeration, but when, when you see economics being presented, you know, our, here's our economics correspondent, you know, the talking head appears on the news and very quickly, it, either you just slip into a coma because it's so boring or you just start to, questions come up in your mind. Well, hang on a minute. That doesn't, that doesn't bear out my experience. You know, that's not what I see out there, you know, in the streets and amongst the people. So that's part of the problem is we have all these metrics and systems of calculating things and working things out. They basically leave humans out of the equation when actually we're the most, uh, not to get, you know, human-centric about this, but as far as the issues we're talking about, we're at the center of it all, so you can't leave us out. Well, and you've just described why I couldn't shut down the Growthbusters project after I finished the film, because <laughs> uh, there was so much work yet to be done to get us uh, unhooked from our addiction to growth. And the progress is uh, unbearably slow. Well, you mentioned the billboard campaign and how that the time was right, but a kind of it's in danger of getting lost in the noise of everything that's going on at the minute with the pandemic. Now, if you're being thoughtful and reflective about it, and a lot of people have commented on this, what we've seen almost overnight, and uh, by the way, we're not going to get into an in-depth discussion of what's going on with the pandemic and all the political and social and economic issues around that. Lots of other people are doing that. It's just tangential to what we're talking about. But people have been talked about clear air, clean water. Certainly when I've been out for a walk, it's springtime here in the UK and nature is glowing. And, you know, the flocks of birds, they seem absolutely ebullient. So in some ways, certain things that we've got more room to see now look better than ever. You know, the most of the world out there seems to be like really, really thriving with this little, you know, we've taken the foot off the gas for uh, what will probably be a few weeks, months. Who knows? Again, and there's all sorts of controversy and potential downsides to this. But simply what I'm getting at is that we, we have a vision now of what a lower population and less economic activity might look like. And... A lot of people have actually said, you know what, we, we do have uh, an uncertain time to get through and we don't know what all this means yet or where it's going. And there, there, there are people suffering and dying at the moment. But if you're able to, to look beyond that, there are things coming out of the current crisis that are causing people to reflect. Let's just put it like that. Yeah. And I mean, it's a really, uh, an important opportunity for us to, 
see what we can what we can learn from that. Uh, I think it's really clearly apparent now the the strong connection between our economy and our economic activity and uh, the, the the crimes against nature, the the dirtier air, the dirtier water. Because, uh, because as you're you're right, we are seeing nature flourish more, and especially in China, the air is so much clearer now with less economic activity. Um, but at the same time, uh, yeah, there's a lot of suffering, and uh, you know, people are going to be without jobs, and uh, you know, it's it's pretty catastrophic. I got an email the other day from Laurel Hanscom, who's the CEO of the Global Footprint Network, and I thought she said it really well that, um, you know, that less ec- economic activity is something that we've known we need to aim for, but this isn't what we, you know, we do not welcome this. This isn't what we had in mind. This is unintentional. And what we've been trying to say is let's do this intentionally because we could, we, we could do it without all of that catastrophe if we were to do it intentionally, if we planned it and, and thought about it a little bit. Exactly, exactly. But it's, if it causes people to have conversations that they wouldn't otherwise have had, then maybe some good can come of that, uh, you know, in, mm-hmm. the lo- in the long term. Well, one thing that has been an increasing trend prior to uh, this current crisis is people downsizing uh, in their lives, not even just in terms of family size, but just downsizing, simplifying, you know, smaller homes. And this is not in any way I'm talking about people being forced into these things. Sometimes they do feel the circumstances have forced them into having less and doing less, but they've tried to make a positive out of it and learned that there was some benefit to it. But other people have been actively choosing it, doing less in their lives, being less busy, taking a step back from whatever position they're in, all the responsibility to to focus on what's more important to them. And that's been a trend that I've been mapping actually for, for many years now. So that undercurrent is there. You know, it's not like we're starting from scratch with the idea that people might be thinking more about what's really important to them in life. You know, we, we, we're quite... Quite a lot, a large number of people are quite far down that path. Yeah, I'm so glad that you commented on that because I, I had an inkling of uh, desire to talk about that in, in my long-winded response about the uh, less economic activity. But, but I think that is really uh, that is an area where I'm hoping we will emerge from this. Uh, and and be different and not return completely to business as usual because I think people are what are they doing they're giving up the unnecessary stuff and uh, you know hopefully they're experiencing the joy of the uh, of the stuff that doesn't have as big a footprint on the planet experiencing the joy of uh, game night with the family more more time with their loved ones the things that don't uh, aren't as hard on the planet. The things that are really hard on the planet are, you know, screaming through the woods on your all-terrain vehicle or, you know, flying to uh, halfway around the world to spend a week on the beach, uh, hopping on a plane to, you know, go watch, uh, you know, your favorite sports team or, or a concert or something like that. And uh, And one thing I've been I've been pleased that all of these uh, conventions and conferences and summits have uh, either been canceled or ideally have gone online because I've long felt that if we really believed that we were in a climate emergency, we would be 
you know, doing all of that stuff online and keeping people from having to, to fly to, to be in location, even though it's awesome to, you know, to actually be with people. We need to be figuring out how to do a lot more of, of our business uh, over the Internet these days. Yeah, it's not about not coming together, you know, because I think a lot of people are already suffering from a, a lack of social contact. So it's not mm-hmm. saying we'll never have any conferences again or we'll, we'll never have any, you know, international sporting or cultural events where thousands of people will come together. It's it's good to do that. And one of the benefits of our, you know, travel technology has been that we, we can do that, but it's a question of scale really, and what you believe to be important. And certainly lots of people, whether they were particularly of an environmental bent or not, w- would scoff at pictures, images of world leaders uh, and environmental campaigners jetting around the world, you know, to go to climate summits, you know, and you'd, you'd, <laughs> yep. see, you'd see the big airstrip with like, you know, 25 <laughs> private jets parked on it, as you know. Yep, that's so true. So I think we, yeah, we do, we're, we're having to kind of figure out how to have uh, a strong sense of community, even if we're not uh, in the same room or the same building with everybody else. And so I hope that that is, uh, uh, that we figured some of that out and that some of that can continue. But, but you're right. I mean, we will always hopefully have the opportunity and enjoy the opportunity to really get together. We have a really big uh, music festival in the, forest just outside of town every at the end of may every year and uh, i'm pretty i'm just waiting for them to announce that that's going to be canceled this year uh it doesn't require getting on an airplane it just requires a little bit of uh, automotive transportation to get up there and i'm really going to sadly miss that because just sitting in a meadow listening to live music uh, you know you can't quite capture that over the internet no no this is true this is true. And another form of dystopia is one in, in science fiction is one where people are completely disconnected. You know, they communicate over tele screens and, you know, they're, they're, they're kept apart living in little cells on their own. And there's been, a, that's, <sighs> that's also been an ongoing trend, you know, people in their little micro apartments playing video games and not seeing anybody. Well, now, you know, it's, some people are being forced to stay in their micro apartments and play video games, but maybe that, when all of this shakes out, people again will have a chance to consciously think about what they want and what they don't want in all of that. Yeah, because I hope you know I'd like to see them get out, get and commune with nature a little bit more. Well, two things I'd like to see uh, an end to or a, cur- a severe curtailment of is one is something I've never done myself, fortunately, but is the dragging yourself to work in the morning in all weathers to go and sit in a little cubicle somewhere in an office compound and just do some task that you really can't work out what you were doing it for. Or there <laughs> may ostensibly be some point to it. You know, maybe you're selling funeral plans or something. I don't know. But, you know, just stuff that the people doing it feel that even if there is a business behind it and money being generated, that they feel this isn't what I should be doing with my life. And even if some of those things carry on, this homeworking thing, you know, which uh, many people are fortunate to be able to benefit from in the internet age, I, you know, I would like to see more of that and maybe corporations just, just loosen their grip a little bit. And because I, I was convinced for a long time that one of the reasons people have to report to offices and maybe they don't clock in and clock out the way automotive factory workers used to, but they're there so they can be observed basically. So we, we know that you're here from nine till five. You've got yeah. one, one hour for lunch. The rest of the time we've got our eyes on you. 
Yeah, and that's such a huge, you know, a huge part of our carbon footprint is the, uh, you know, the heating and cooling and lighting of all those buildings and uh, uh, moving all of those people in tons of steel, you know, every morning to those workplaces and then back home at the end. So, yeah, you're right. I hope it would be great if a lot of these businesses discover, wow, we can really, you know, we can stay in business while everybody's working from home and we can… You know, we don't need all those buildings and all those uh, commuters on the freeways. And the other thing of those two things, and I benefit as much as a lot of us do from having produce and products coming to my door from the other side of the planet. But I acknowledge there are issues with that. So perhaps we could see the end of, I think, what James Howard Constable refers to as the thousand miles Caesar salad, <laughs> which is this absurd idea of, you know, you're eating, you know, for example, a Caesar salad and maybe you know, chicken in there. All that came from the farm down the road and the lettuce came from Mexico, you know, and uh, the croutons came from Canada and it's kind of like, and the anchovies came from Spain. <laughs> now, when you start down that road, you can very quickly trigger people who, uh, and you know, and I say I benefited from these systems we all have, but trigger people who say, oh, well, you're talking about everything just being shut down and life therefore becomes less and we only eat local and it's less choice, less of everything. Before you know it, we're going to be medieval serfs. It's not about that. It's just about the, my own personal, um, absurd moment of that came a couple of Christmases ago when I saw some Brussels sprouts. Actually, if you don't know what those are, folks, just Google it. Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and they're, they were on their stalk. So they grow on a stalk. Normally they're just in a bag when you want to buy them. They're a typical part of a Christmas dinner here in the UK. And I picked up the Brussels sprout stock and oh maybe i'll have this this looks fancy and it said product of israel oh, and i thought why is there there's if there's anywhere in the world that is dark and wet enough to to ideally be suited to grow brussels sprouts is england why are we bringing them from israel <laughs> in time for christmas it was, so maybe the end of that sort of thing yeah yeah unfortunately you can't uh, amazon can't deliver your produce from the local farmers market so uh, i'm anxious to be able to i hope this uh, summer we'll be able to get out and congregate just enough at least to uh, get some good fresh local produce that didn't get to you in an airplane well uh closing thought uh from me dave really a lot of what we're talking about in terms of the, the population reduction that would perhaps be very beneficial for the planet is essentially in terms of people not being born, not in terms of people who are already alive dying. Of course, people naturally die for all sorts of reasons, and that's part of the cycle of life and death. But basically, we're talking about people not being born. And for some people, the psychology of all this is very important. You know, what people think about themselves and their place in the world and how they relate to each other and the human species, the whole human experiment, you know, the whole human journey has so far for, for many people been about growth and about expansion. And that's, that's brought with it so many good things. So that's very, very ingrained. But what I would say is that a, a, a falling human population is not a defeat. It doesn't mean that we failed on the planet far from it. It's not about numbers. And if I even get spiritual or mystical for a moment, if there is meaning and purpose in our existence, then it's not dependent on how many of us there are. So three billion people on the planet, if there's a natural plan, if evolution has a direction, that can continue. So that's my big picture taking all of this, is it isn't about raw numbers. Whatever it is that we're here to do, if there's 11 billion of us, doesn't make us more able or more likely to fulfill our purpose and, and meaning 
than if there's three billion. Oh, that's so true. You're talking about quality, not quantity. You know, there weren't uh, billions of people on the planet when uh, Plato or Aristotle or uh, Shakespeare uh, were were doing those things. So we don't need those kind of numbers in order to in order to flourish. Um, I, and I, I hope that if anyone's actually stuck with us for the whole conversation and, and we're, we're not, uh, at the beginning very crazy about the idea of even talking about overpopulation, I hope that you've, you know, come to realize, wow, we're not talking about just overconsuming like crazy and, and we have to shrink the population so that we can all continue to be uh, big pigs on the planet. It really is, uh, it's just an essential part of a, uh, of a program that uh, will scale back the impact of our existence. Our, our civilization has got to address both our economic activity and the number of people engaging in it. And, uh, and the one child, one planet, billboard campaign and really all of the work I'm doing at Growthbusters and at World Population Balance about the population side of the equation is not dictating anyone's decision or telling anyone what to do. It's really just trying to help couples around the world uh, have access to good information so that they can make informed decisions that are for the uh, in the best interest of their family. Uh, we're trying to celebrate and thank people for smaller family size decisions, and we're not targeting people of any particular nation, color, education level, or income level. It's it's something that we all need to be knowing about and, and working on right now. Splendid. Well, Dave, before we sign off, just fire out for listeners, websites, resources online, anything you'd like to share. Sure. Uh, thanks for that opportunity. If you're a regular podcast listener, just search for the Growth Busters podcast and the Overpopulation podcast on your uh, podcast app or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I am really excited about the new website, OnePlanetOneChild.org. A uh, really great place to get up to speed on uh, the overpopulation issue. And there's a media resources page there that has some really great, stunning pictures and video of these billboards um growthbusters.org uh, always a good place to explore these issues and if you haven't seen the the film growthbusters hooked on growth believe it or not greg people are still ordering dvds and organizing community screenings that film is not dead yet so people can uh, find out more about that film at uh, growthbustersmovie.org splendid well once again dave thank you so much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com it has been a real pleasure, Greg. Uh, anytime I can have an hour plus of intelligent conversation like you've just given me, sign me up. <laughs>